Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I, I am, I'm truly thrilled to have Sadhguru here with us today. This, uh, it's a big deal for me during this time of the pandemic. Uh, I came across his writings, uh, his words. I watched him speak. Uh, we don't know one another, but I am a deep diver, as, as you are in, in certain ways. So I, I read a lot. And, um, <laughs> and although, as you were when you were a young person, I'm uh, by nature uh, Hey, what skeptic. do you mean? I'm, I'm still young. What is this? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah. in your books, you talk about when you were quite young and uh, skeptic. And uh, I, I am. Uh, you look great, by the way. Let me say I know every that you're you know concerned about making sure you appear young. Uh, no, you look great. Um, but first of all, so thank you, man. Your 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 uh, whole bearing and being, but you, you, the fact that you also drill down so hard on the logic of all of it is very helpful for people who come to any sort of mysticism with some skepticism. Uh, the logic seems to obtain regardless of the belief system one goes in with? See, the thing is, the starting point uh, for a human mind is always lo logic. Anything that's not logical, you cannot digest it. This is the nature of human intelligence. Unless, of course, uh, you're uh, kind of uh, twisted in, somebody has drilled it into you to believe something which doesn't make logical sense or uh, they have uh, battered your logic in such a way that it doesn't function, it is dysfunctional. Otherwise, it is… it is not that you have to be trained, it is very logical or it's very na natural even for a child that only if it's logically correct, even a little child will accept that it is… Tr it is true, otherwise no. Well, logic is at different levels. Logic can evolve from a very crude level of logic to a very sophisticated sense of logic. But uh, even… even if two people are, uh, let's say, having a big argument, both of them think the other person is illogical, but within themselves, each person thinks they are logically correct because that's very important for the human intellect because in the human intellect, without logical steps, there is no… Pa there is no stairway anywhere. Don't right, get and so… And so as a stairway, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And, um, and I, I will say I'm often torn as in my, in my whole life between wanting to understand things intellectually and wanting to kiss the Buddha on the forehead so that I understand everything. Uh, <laughs> right. This is the battle that we, this is the battle we go through. Uh, <laughs> And this has been my whole life, this sort of thing. That's why I find your work so appealing uh, and fascinating, because it seems to me you, you cover all of it. So I guess this is where I wanted to start, which is the myth of the kiss of, uh, on the, the forehead of the Buddha and this moment of understanding transcendence and connection. What it speaks to uh, is the idea that this can in some way be transmuted. And, and the question I have is, can you transmute this feeling to another? And if so, obviously you're judicious in when you do, but m must the individual attain it alone for it to last? Or can it even in brief moments be somehow trans transmuted uh, so that it's understood very deeply and not merely as an, as an ideal to attain, to try to attain? See, uh, 
my essential work is not teaching. It is a transmission, always. All this talk <laughs> which people think is the main body of work, all these books are to get the attention of people who are lost in their own logic. Their yes. logic cannot explain a thing in the world, actually, but yes. still they're clinging… <laughs> they're clinging on to it because that's all they have. So everybody clings on to whatever they have, that's natural. What is the significance of logic? See, logical mind is very significant in establishing a foundation. Without a logical foundation, if you think you're becoming mystical, you will become very dreamy and uh, all la-la land kind of mind you will become, you will lose your fundamentals. So it's important to establish a very strong foundation of logic, uh, a very… not a crude logic, but evolve the logic to such a point that it is almost on the edge of… it cannot go any further kind of logic, you establish it there. From there, transcendence is possible, but you don't seek transcendence. See. If your logic is taken to such a fine level, you become very light, like a feather. Then if you have reached a certain peak of logic, then when the wind blows, you will fly away. You don't try to fly away because it is not that kind, because it is like love, you have to fall into it, otherwise it doesn't happen. So if one has to fall into it, nobody can ever fall into anything logically. Logic will not allow you to fall. So the moment you become logical, love vanishes, mysticism vanishes, spirituality vanishes. In fact, everything beautiful vanishes because you will start thinking in terms of logically, what is this, what is that? Because logic can only function between two polarities. If there is no two, there is no logic. But mysticism means diving into that one fantastic reality of existence. So it cannot be done logically, at the same time if you don't have a logical base, you will become very illusionary. The hard thing about what you're saying, I think, is when you set out and speak so beautifully in all your books, I, I just read Karma and I've read in Inner Engineering and I've read Death, all three books. Uh, when you set out what the initial moments of transcendence felt like for you. It is, it's so appealing. It's, it's all, it is akin to holding out water to a thirsty person in the desert, right? You, uh, and so when you say one shouldn't want to have this wanting of attaining it, we're still holding it out there as the water to the thirsty person, right? And this creates a tension in being able to just go there. So how should one manage that tension? Because it's not as if you're not putting the ideal there. You are for us. So there's this gulf. How, how does one deal with that gulf? See, uh, the moment you say an aspiration or a desire, you can only desire what you already know. You cannot desire something that you do not know. So if you're going towards something that you know in a slightly modified way, that is not called transformation. You go towards something that you don't know, something that is new. That is why always when it comes to spiritual process or mysticism, we use the word seeker. You are a genuine seeker only if you have realized, I do not know. If you know where to go, then you are not a seeker, 
you're right. just a traveler, maybe. You're on a journey to a destination that you know. A seeker is somebody who wants to go to a destination that he does not know. Whatever it is, he wants to know something beyond where he is right now. See, this is not an idea or a, a, some kind of an inspiration put in by somebody. This is the natural longing of human intelligence. Whatever you are in this world, wherever you are, you want to be something more than what you are right now. If that more happens, you want something more. This is… this is for everybody. Only the sick and the dying <laughs> will say this is enough. Otherwise, if there is enough energy coursing through your veins, you will say something more. What something more may be money, may be wealth, may be knowledge, may be love, may be pleasure, may be anything. But whatever you know best, whatever may be your currency, but you want something more. But if that something more happens, you want something more. If we go like this, suppose we make Brian Koppelman the emperor of this planet, will he settle down? First of all, I pass on the job. <laughs> Thank you. That's I, too much. No thanks. Okay, New York, but, Yes, New York City. but I know what you mean. Yes, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. Yes. <laughs> So if you… <laughs> even if you have the planet, then you'll want the yeah. solar system. If you have that, you'll need the galaxy. If you have that, you'll need the cosmos because people are misunderstanding this as some kind of greed. No, this is human longing to expand. There is something within you which does not like boundaries. The moment you set the boundary, it wants to expand. The moment you set the boundary, it wants to expand. If you observe this phenomena, you will see you want to expand limitlessly. You want to become boundless, but right now you're using physical means to become boundless. But the nature of physicality is such, physical exists only because of a defined boundary. If there was no boundary for this body, you couldn't call it a physical body. Where is it? It's all over. Only because of a boundary, physical can exist. But now, through the physical means, you are trying to reach a non-physical dimension because what is boundless can only be non-physical. So when your search becomes fulfilling in the sense that you touch a dimension beyond your physical nature, now it gets labeled with the most corrupt word, spiritual. Corrupt word yes. means corrupted… corrupted word, right, let me say. Most corrupted in the uh, world Perhaps right both. Now. By the way, perhaps both <laughs> very often, right? Uh, <laughs> no, no. Often both. <laughs>
See, can you do any aspect of life without involvement, I'm asking? Without involvement, would you know what is the joy of food, what is the joy of breathing, what is the joy of people around you, what is the joy of love or anything? Without involvement, there is no life. Once you know this, how can you talk about detachment? If you want to detach yourself, well, there is Hudson River. Yes <laughs> Because <laughs> I believe in efficiency. If you want to detach yourself from life, death is the most efficient way to do it. You're alive and you want to do your aliveness without involvement, it's not going to work. Now, essentially, see because these are all in local languages in India, Sanskrit language, Pali language, translated into English and they made it like this. They are talking about involvement. Somebody said attachment, all right? It is not about attachment and detachment, they're talking about involvement and entanglement. Entanglement, is it crippling? It always is crippling. Is involvement empowering? Yes, that is the only empowerment you have. How profoundly you're involved is how profound your experience of life is. So, this whole process of uh, Eastern uh, <laughs> teachings, Buddhas and yogis and stuff, going in English language has its problem, where I think that is why uh, what I'm doing is of significance. Probably this is the… Yes. Why I'm one of the few people who is speaking in English language with the proper context. Otherwise, it's always been spoken in various Indian languages and you know, India had uh, or still has about thirteen hundred languages. So, <laughs> we speak in so many different ways and that being translated, by Europeans and Americans become something else because they are taking it word by word. Because in India for the same thing, we have many different words. For example, yes. if you say love, for love we have twelve different words to <laughs> in various qualities of it. And, and yet, if we just stay with this idea of, des of desire, as you said, if you're desiring something, it can only be something that, that you know enough to want to desire. Yet we have this, let's say it's, um, it's inchoate in its expression. It's, it's not complete in its expression, but this feeling that there is the possibility of transcendence. Where I think most of us have somewhere in us that feeling. I know I've been meditating for 10 years, transcendental meditation, which I know isn't what you teach, but I've been doing that for 10 years. And, and at times, I, I, I can sense, or I just, that's not even that, you know, I'm in that place between wakefulness and sleep and it's neither and I'm, uh, I come out of it very different than I came into it. But this desire to be able to make that happen is hard to fight inside you, right? You know you shouldn't. So how do you train people to, to, to get themselves in a place where that can happen and you're not going for it? See, uh, this longing to expand limitlessly is not in any one person, it is there in every human being. You said in most people, no, in every human being it's there. What sort of expression does it find? See, if this very fundamental longing within us which wants to expand, but it's going in installments. It wants to become limitless, but it's going in installments. When you approach infinity in installments, you will end up being endless counting. <laughs>
There is simply yes. no other way. Yes. So that's all that's happening. So if you… if somebody is all body, let's say their main focus is their body, then their idea of expansion is sexuality because sexuality means something that is not you, you… for a moment you… you begin to experience like it's a part of you. So if it finds an emotional expression, we call it love. If it finds a mental expression, we call it ambition, conquest or uh, simply shopping, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it finds an energetic and conscious expression, then we call it yoga. Yoga means union. You're in York, yoga means twisting and turning. No, yeah. no, yoga yeah. means union. So union means your idea of being an individual is just a psychological idea. Existentially, even now it is not true. As you sit here, you're breathing in one part of the world, I am breathing in another part of the world. If we wait long enough, Maybe my exhalation will come to you. Winds are blowing in your direction, I can see today here <laughs> yeah. I'm saying we are not individual by any standards. Existentially, we are not individual. But psychologically, we are individual. This individuality is one of the greatest privileges conferred upon us by nature. Though we are nothing, we are like a minuscule who pop up and pop out, on this planet, we have been given an individual experience. This is the most fantastic thing that's happened to us. We are not a group, though we are trying to be groups of various kinds, essentially we have an individual experience. This is the most fantastic thing that life has offered to us. But if we stretch this too far, it becomes exclusivism, that you have no engagement with life. Your psychological cocoon becomes a world by itself. See, right now, everything is going fine in the world today, actually. Planet is spinning on time and uh, no asteroids coming and hitting us. All the eleven planets not tangled up, everything following their traffic lanes, all galaxies in place, nothing, everything is just fantastic. The sun not but exploding, you, yes. Not yeah. at all, today it's not. Yes. Uh, if, but you, you have one nasty little thought in your head and it's a bad day. So I'm saying, we have made our psychological nonsense too significant. You… we are misunderstanding our psychological space as existential. We are thinking it's a reality. It is something that you make up. Your thought and emotion is something that you make up. If you were conscious, you would make it the way you want. If you could make your thought and emotion the way you want, you wouldn't be talking about the special place where there is little peace and this and that. No. Every… every space, wherever you are, you would be blissed out every moment of your life yes. because your thought and emotion is happening the way you want. And yes. it must happen because it's your thought, it must happen your way, otherwise what's the point? Yes, uh, I love the, th the, the thing that, that you say, which is that uh, if you're hungry, you only have one problem and uh, when your belly's full, you have a hundred problems and I understand it. And of course, it's the problem of, I'd say modern society, I'm sure you would say it's been there as long as there's been society, basically, uh, this, this, this problem. But I do have a question about, the only time I bump on, uh, on when I read what you say, and I, especially when I read the book Death, um, and I want to talk a little bit about your experience there, but when I think about my children, and uh, if anything were to befall them, 
And I think about what you say about how one should manage that grief and, and that we're in control of it. And it's not dissimilar from what Viktor Frankl says, right, in, in his great book, Man's Search for Meaning, which he lived through the Holocaust. But what about the idea that you would miss them? Like a dear friend of mine died two years ago. And I think about him all the time, genuinely just miss him. Uh, and I'm not sure that I want, do I want to not have this warm feeling about him and, and, and miss him? And, and that's, that's my question for you. Where does that go when you master all this stuff? Where does that, uh, that, that, that part of love go? That question that you're asking is, are you still human? That's a question you're asking me. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Well, very human <laughs> in the sense, see the question is, people are in our lives, so many. Some are physically close to us, some are away, but this does not determine how close somebody is, That's physical right. proximity and no physical proximity. So right now in your room, you're just alone there or maybe just yes. one more person assisting. No, I'm alone in the room, yeah. Yeah, so all the others, your family, friends, others actually don't exist in your experience. Yes. They only exist in your memory, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yes. So, the friend, whoever passed away, it is the same thing, they, he only exists in your memory, he is not in your physical experience. So right now, your family, your friends, everybody else that you know in your life, none of them exist in this room, just you. You're living with their memory and you're fine. The same is true, even otherwise. See, right now, you don't know whether I exist or I'm just a computer or something <laughs> Yes, but I do know, right? Because we are not just bound by uh, the limitations of logic, as you said. So I actually do… I, I know, in the same way you know. The question is… Yes, when it comes uh, to death, the significance yes. of death is, see right now, your friends and family are gone somewhere, they will come back. The significance yes. of death is, they go somewhere and they don't come back, all right? A whole lot of your friends may not come back, they may not meet you. Maybe, you know, we do Zoom and whatever else, but a whole lot of us may not meet because of this pandemic and whatever yes. else. So, the thing is just this, I'm not trying to play with this thing, like as if death is not a significant aspect of our life, it is. It is not a simple thing. They especially now, uh, you know, just yesterday my cousin brother who is one year younger to me passed away with COVID. I'm he sorry. went to the hospital and he never came out. And uh, the family, his wife and child and everybody else, were, you know, we inquired and they said, don't come, no point because we are not getting the body. They're wrapping the body and sending it straight to the crematorium from the hospital. So, it is not that uh, death is not something significant in our life, it is, it is very significant, otherwise, how is it? In fact, our mortality is the most significant aspect of who we are, which yes. determines everything about us. So yes. about grief, see grief means just this. There are various kinds of memories within us, in the sense, there are mental memories, emotional memories and physical memories. Body has its own memory. We call this Runanubandha in the death book, I think we've talked about this quite uh, substantially. Yes. If there is a physical memory in your system and that person dies, it will leave a kind of a vacuum which will hurt physically. It is not… 
it is not emotion, it is not thought, there is a pain, physical pain yes. will come. Yes. So, if you don't handle, deal with that consciously, then it can become a wound, it can become an ailment, it can… People have even died like that, you know? There is somebody, they love each other so much, and if yes. it… Uh, one person dies, within a few weeks the other person dies, just like that, because they can't fill that vacuum within themselves. There are any number of cases like that. So it is people think they died of their emotions, not necessary. It is not necessarily because of emotion, because who you are right now is a collage of many experiences. You are not really an individual as such. So one of the most important aspects of spiritual process is to make you an individual. An individual means somebody who is not further divisible. That means you are one. Because only if you become an individual, then there is transformation possible, then there is transcendence possible. If there are many these things, collages, you cannot make this transcend because this is just a picture. What is… And, and this individual, because the other thing you always talk about is this individual, or you often talk about in the books, is this, there's an individual, but it's not a solipsistic existence you're looking for because it's an individual who's still incredibly connected to the world and nature and who sees as an individual that they're, in fact, as you say, at the atomic level, they're all the same. So you're still connected to everything as this individual, right? See, that is what yoga means. Yoga does not mean you're trying to attain something. You're only realizing something. There is a difference between attainment and realization. So always in the East, when somebody becomes enlightened, we say he's realized. He's realized means what? Right. Something that was always true, today you saw it. It was always there, but you didn't see it. Today you saw it, that is realization. It is not called an attainment because there is nothing to attain. Just the process of life, its fundamentals and its magnitude of what it is, when you realize, <laughs> there is no question of asking for anything more because like it's too phenomenal. It is too phenomenal for anybody to crunch it in their mind and say, this is it. Because it's not like that, it is a limitless possibility. You dissolve into it in such… some way, that is when you realize that this is all one. It is not that existence becomes a part of you. You undo the psychological structure you have created and you breathe life, not just air. You breathe life and you realize this is all one. So, when this happens to an individual human being, his sense of individuality becomes a very conscious process. Consciously you set up your individual nature as it is necessary to function in the world. Everybody is doing it to some extent, but when it becomes totally flexible, then you handle your love, your grief, your pain, your whatever in a conscious manner. See, a whole lot of us, you are a writer, I mean you're writing for movies and plays, I don't know if you write for plays. When I come to uh, New York, one of the things that I do is in the evenings I'm always in Broadway. <laughs> yes, that's great. So, you write plays also? I haven't written a play yet, but I write… Uh, I mean, I'm working… I have one, but I haven't written it yet, really. Uh, I write movies and television, that's what I write, okay. yeah. So, uh, when you… when you write these things, you… some of them may be tragedy, all right? Tragic endings yes. and stuff. Why do people go and see those sad things? Why should they see? Uh, because 
They want a profound experience of something. Catharsis. I was going to ask you about catharsis. Yes, the value in catharsis. Yeah. See, see, it doesn't matter what it is. Human longing for deepening their experience is such that even if they have to poke themselves with a pin, they will do that. But they want something profound to happen to them. Otherwise, who would bear a child? Who would go through all this nonsense about life if they were allergic to all those things? The reason why they're going through all this is seeking profoundness of experience. Whether they are drinking or drugging or praying or meditating or loving or whatever they're doing, you're all in search of profoundness of experience because yes. this is all you have with life. Profound… when it comes to experience of life, you want the most profound experience. It doesn't matter whether it's love, joy, grief, you want something to happen to you. If nothing happens to you, that is the most tragic life, actually. If something terrible happened to you, still in America you can write a book about it and, you know, yes. run your whole life <laughs> sure. on that little tragedy. Yes. <laughs> yes. This idea of dissolution that you talk about dissolving, I, it, it's funny, uh, all writers have these moments Right, you show up, I mean, people talk, you know, you show up to do your work. I mean, you're a writer, uh, obviously. And, and um, but there are these moments, if you write every day, when you have th this feeling that you've disappeared, you're tethered, you're barely tethered to the earth. You're somehow hyper present, but you're not here, you're in the ether. And these are the moments as a writer that you can't chase, exactly what you said before, you can't chase it. I can't attempt that. That has nothing to do with it. I am merely in the act of doing what I do. And occasionally this thing happens when I then, because I only know when I return to my body, if that makes sense to you. I only know when I come back. And I, uh, it's the greatest thing when that happens. It's not intentional. It just happens. The greatest thing, Brian, that can happen to you is you lost yourself. <laughs> yes, it's true though, right? I mean, when you're in this other, well, as, as, as you described the experience on, on, on the hill, my question is though, are you, are you always in that state? This thing I'm describing, you know, are you always in this place of blissful transcendence? Even as you're interacting in the, even as you grieve, right? Because as you said, you are human. So you must grieve for something occasionally, but are you managing that process differently than I'm managing that process? Uh, I'm capable of grief if I wish to, but it's not… nothing is compulsive for me. Ah. I just… I just bleed bliss, that's my problem. Well, why… so is there no value and is there no value… the genuine question, really, truly, is there no value in grief and the catharsis that comes through grief? See, uh, when you say grief and catharsis, anyway, it doesn't matter how dear somebody is to you when you lose them, you go through a period of grief and after some time you slowly come back, right? After yes. that, on first day you think, the day it happens you think I'm never going to eat again, but after three days you will eat, then you'll think I'll never going to drink again, after seven days you'll drink, then you'll say I'll never sing and dance again, then after ten days you'll do this, everything will happen after a month or maybe three months, depends on who the person is, it happens. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, this is perfectly fine. 
It is just that any way you will come out of it. Or do you… are you coming out of it consciously by choice or are you coming out of it by for, by being forgetful? Mm. That… I think being forgetful is a bad thing to do to the dead. I am never forgetful. I just cherish all the people who have been in my life because I have such a large family of a few million people. Every day, somebody who is dear to me is dying somewhere. Every day, you know, at least half a dozen people are being buried, the people I know very well. So if I sit here and for each person, if I take ten days to come out, then I will be buried in grief all the time. Yes. So, because people are like this, because first of all, they have kept their engagement with other life very limited. Only one person they're loving. What this means is they've built walls around themselves, just one little door they've opened or a window, I would say they've opened. They… when their window gets blocked, then they will cry and feel suffocated for a period of time. It takes a long time for them to crawl through the brickwork and come out. But yes. if you are engaged with life in every possible way, with every kind of life, not just humans, then you will see you know, not… it's not that you don't value life. People that we have lost are valuable to us only because when they were there, there are wonderful moments that we shared in so many different ways. So should you cherish them or should you grieve them? Should they be the source of your joy or should they be blamed for your misery? What is the technology though to and, and you can explain, I know this is your life's work to help people have this technology, but what is the technology by which one can switch the impulse to something that serves them better, right? This is the thing, right? Instead of the impulse toward this grief, because all of us would prefer to have the joy and the bliss as you talk about. And, and by the way, as Maharishi talked about, right, we're going to try to find our way to, if we can, our mind naturally will go to the more peaceful, better, blissful place. But it takes a long time, as you said. Uh, no, no, the I, initial, didn't say, I didn't say. <laughs> I you didn't said say it takes, takes a long time. No, ten. You no, said no. for the regular person, it might take, could take three months, could no, take that, six I'm months. I'm saying that that is that is that is their guilt. They ah, think if okay, somebody dear to me dies today, tomorrow you, if yes. I smile, people think because there is a social construct. Yes. If tomorrow somebody dear to me or you is dead today and if you smile, people think, look at him, no grief, so huh. something wrong with this whole thing. No, you might have immensely loved them and especially if you loved them, their memories you must cherish, not grieve. They are the source of your joy, not the source of your misery, that's what it should be. So the social construct may make you… a whole lot of people are grieving. Not only by… some part of it is by themselves, rest of it is imposed upon them. They are made to grieve because that is the natural way. So ignorance is the natural way, that is what we have established in the societies and that's what we need to change. So when we talk about this blissfulness, is it just something that you do within yourself? Is it a trick? Is it some kind of a philosophy? Is it a practice? No, the important thing is this. See, all human experience, on one simple level, there are many dimensions to this, but the simplest ways to understand this is, all human experience has a chemical basis to it. What you call as peace is one kind of chemistry, joy is another kind of chemistry, misery another kind of chemistry, everything, agony, ecstasy has its own chemistry. Now, 
if… if we can teach you a simple process with which your chemistry becomes blissful, then you are always blissed out. This doesn't mean you will behave in an insensitive way. There is a serious situation, somebody either dear to you or somebody else is dead, will you go there and laugh and dance? No, you will know how to behave because you are most sensible when you are happy, isn't it so? Yes. You do insensible… Uh, you do senseless things only when you are miserable, unhappy, angry, frustrated. Otherwise, most human beings are… when they are happy, they do the most sensible things. So, happiness or blissfulness does not mean you are going to lose your sense. No, it makes you very balanced and sensitive. Sensitive to life around you, only when you are joyful, you will attend to everybody's needs, isn't it? When you are miserable, your own needs are so much that you will never attend yes. to anybody else's needs. So grief, love, pain, joy, these are all different things that we create within ourselves. Are we creating it consciously or unconsciously is the only choice we have. There is nothing else to it. It is nothing is happening to you, it is being done by you. Whether you do it consciously or unconsciously is the only choice. If you are given a choice, would you like to do consciously or unconsciously? Definitely consciously, isn't it? Well, there is a certain foundation to see that everything happened consciously. For that foundation, you may have to do a little work. That is very simple, everybody can do it. What is the work? Well, we are right now presenting it as a technology, we call this inner engineering that you engineer yourself well because the word engineering... See, in many ways today, the many magics of modern world is because of engineering. There may be a science behind it, but science won't stand up and work for you. Somebody has to engineer something, all right? So we say, let's say this building is well engineered or this machine or automobile is well, well engineered, means what? It functions just the way I want. That's why I think it's well engineered. So. Isn't it very important, this one, this one life at least functions just the way I want. If this function just the way I want, would I keep it blissful or miserable? <laughs> so, blissful, I just chose... Yeah. Till now, I chose to keep it blissful. Tomorrow, let me see if I feel... Right like until this conversation, I've taken you in... <laughs> I've taken it in the other direction, sadly, but right up until now. So when you talk about this inner engineering, can you define, earlier you said, you know, when in New York, when we talk about yoga, it's uh, just uh, different stretching and poses. And I guess in LA, when they talk about it, it's stretching and poses, but um, in uh, in the right kind of outfit that they have to wear. That's the difference Lulu, in LA. Lulu. And, yeah, you're, right. You're selling the Lulu. <laughs> in LA, it has to be the same as New York, but with Lululemon. But, uh, <laughs> but when you define, when you define yoga, and this technology, can, can you talk a little bit? And, and could you also please define for me when you say meditation, uh, right? As I told you, I've practiced every day. I don't miss a day, twice a day. I do transcendental meditation. I know that's not, or it seems to me that's not the same as the meditation that, that you practice. I have two questions about this. One, could you talk about what the meditation practice is that, that you feel like helps one get here? And two... Can they be combined? Can I, because I was very anxiety ridden and I started doing TM and my anxiety just 
dropped and never came back. Like, so I don't want to lose that, but I would love to do what you recommend too. Can they be combined or is only one useful? Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm open to whatever you say. I really want to hear it. Say, uh, I mean, I don't wish to comment about uh, what uh, someone else been teaching. That is, it's worked for millions of people, so there's nothing for me to say about it. But there are different uh, aspects to it in the sense, see, first of all, let's understand this. The word meditation, the English word meditation is not saying anything specific, it is too generic. Yes. So because of that, when you say meditation, everything is going as meditation, so there is a little problem in understanding. For example, uh, here in India, we have different words for different aspects of what you do within yourself. We say japa, tapa, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, shunya or uh, samyama or uh, one might have mastered the art of sleeping in vertical postures, you know, there are various things one can do with eyes yeah. closed. So, what is it that you're doing? To describe what you're doing right now, it is a kind of japa, that is you utter a mantra, you wait, you utter a mantra, you wait. It has calming effect on the system for sure, because the simple sound itself will slowly change your chemistry. It yes. does, no question about it. So the thing is, it is one dimension of practice which is going as meditation. Now everything else is going as meditation, ah. everything else we do. So we… it is best that we specify what is it. So what we are doing is called as Kriya. Shambhavi Mahamudra is a kind of a Kriya. Kriya means internal action. There is no external action, there is no mantra, there is no anything else, it is just an internal action. We may use… The, we have to use the breath and the body because that's what we have, all right? What else do you have? Those are the instruments that you have. So, only problem with Shambhavi Mahamudra is it's a phenomenal thing, lot of studies are there, if you want, I'll send it to you. What things yes, it please. does to people is quite incredible. Uh, but you need understanding, you need preparation. So normally to teach a twenty-minute practice, we take thirty to thirty-two hours of preparation and delivering it, because without that preparation and involvement, it'll not work. So we have much simpler practices which are just put out on the online platforms called Isha Kriya, which everybody can do, millions of people are doing it without any training. You can just listen to something for an hour and a half. After that, twelve-minute practice, you can just do it wherever you are, whichever way you are. So does that work? That also works, but you need to understand in every aspect of life, you're in New York City, you will understand this, without investment there is no reward or… <laughs> all right? <laughs> so how much you invest and how much you get is accordingly it goes. So if you want a very profound experience of life, you want just relief from anxiety, what you're doing is fine or you can do Isha Kriya, you can do it along with that, there is no problem, it'll work very well, they won't fight with each other, you no. don't have to worry about that. Uh, some uh, teachers may fight, but the instruments don't fight, they will work, Good. okay <laughs> But the Shambhavi Mahamudra is of a different dimension altogether. What it does to you, let me explain to you. If you sit here and you practice Shambhavi, what it creates is your body is here, your mind is out there, what is you is little away from that. See, there are only two kinds of sufferings in your life physical suffering and mental suffering. You do not know any other kind of suffering, isn't it? This is all yes. the fire. Once there is a little space between you and your body and between you and your mind, this is the end of suffering. 
So when you sit for the practice, with eyes closed, you can clearly see there is a distance between you and what you have accumulated in the form of body and mind. But when you open your eyes, again everything is stuck one into the other. Every day, every day, morning, evening, if you keep doing, one day you open your eyes, you will see, still you are the same way. This is the end of suffering. Only when the fear of suffering vanishes from your life, will you walk full stride in your life. Otherwise, every step is only a half a step. And so how does somebody learn this, the thirty-two hours of… is there a way to learn this without coming to the Isha Foundation in India? Is there a… is there a way to learn exactly what you're saying? Well, uh, if you cannot come to Isha Foundation in India, you can go to Tennessee, but now we have also made it online possibility. It's taken a lot of work to make it online. In terms of life, it costs much more to do online, but there is a seven-session online program, in Engineering Online. This is a preparatory program. After that, there is a weekend, uh, the Shambhavi Mahamudra program, which is called as Inner Engineering Completion. Together you have a certain understanding and then you have the practice. And then uh, there are committed volunteers, you are assisting you through the program. If you have any issues, even post-program, they will make sure your practice goes well by constantly being in touch with you till you get it. And so that's available to everybody now, they can… Yes, that's they available can, to everybody. They can yes. find that. Great. Uh, I am eager to find it and try to do it and uh, I, I, I will. I'll ask them to send you a link. Uh, you can do Thank the you. engineering preparatory and then you can go for completion. Thank you. Yes, I'll do it. I really appreciate it. Uh, when, when you were uh, in business, before… You know, it's fascinating to read about your relationship with your father because someone looking at you now might think none of this stuff ever bothered you at all, right? And, uh, but reading about you and your dad is, is really, I think all of us can relate in some way to expectations. And the way you tell it, even though maybe it, it, the way you tell it is, you know, when you went into the poultry business, it, it was in some way in reaction to, to this before you were able to move on. Uh, do you, at that time, did you ever lose your temper? Did you ever, did business ever make you uh, annoyed? Or were, were you just built differently and <laughs> sort of never able, never triggered uh, at any time in, in your life? And if so, how do you relate to the rest of us who are, get <laughs> triggered from time to time? From the… probably from the age of uh, thirteen to twenty-twenty-one, uh, I was not angry with anybody, but I was just simply angry all the time. Ah! <laughs> Anger kept me really intense. Yes. And uh, most people are angry and then they're okay and then they're angry and they're okay. No, I'm not like that. I'm twenty-four hours angry. <laughs> Not about anything, I'm not… I'm not bursting out at anybody, I'm not yelling at anybody, I'm not picking a fight with anybody, that never happened. But I'm just angry uh, because I saw everything as injustice, yeah. uh, you know? Whether it is social structures, it is economic structures, political structures, religious nonsense happening around you, everything looked like absolute injustice and everything is a lie. 
and uh, so I am just angry, boiling at everything, but I never blew my top. I just kept it, kept all the steam inside. So it kept me extremely intense, so intense all the time, that if I walked into a room full of people, they would all stop talking, not because of anything, simply because I walked in, because I was like intense, always bursting like that, never said a thing. Actually, I was extremely taciturn those days, I would never say a thing to anybody. It was very hard for anybody to get a word out of me. I was just quite physically very active in lot of sports, adventure, all kinds of things, but barely spoke. So why I'm saying this is, see, in the very nature of life, if you look at everything logically, everything looks like it's absurd, unjust and you know, it's just not right, nothing is right. So actually what we are doing is, we are trying to fit the existence into the little logical head that we have. But we have to do it the other way, we have to put this head into the existence. Instead of that, we are trying to put the whole creation into our head, it doesn't fit. So I was experiencing that friction in my head <laughs> and, and can you talk about uh, what in fact happened when uh, you went up uh, Chumandi Hill? Am I saying it correctly? But can… And is that when it started to change for you in that moment? And could you… could you describe for the… the… you know, the audience who's listening to this, who knows you knows this, but I think a lot of people who are in my audience might not. And I think it's an important thing to talk about uh, for a moment. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking where to start. <laughs> See, uh, this Mysore city, many, many of your audience may be familiar with this because anybody who visits south, southern India inevitably goes to Mysore city because it's a very touristy place, it's a pretty little town, all that. It was very pretty when I was growing up. Today, it's again become like any other bustling city <laughs> Sure. So, there is this hill right inside the town where I have trekked in my childhood, I've trekked, I've camped in the hill, I've lived there for two, three days at a stretch and I've caught my cobras there, I've done all kinds of things. We partied there, anything and everything. So, the culture in Mysore city at least at that time was for the young people, if… Uh, you know, if we want to test our motorcycles, we go up Chamundi Hill. We want to meet peer friends, we go up Chamundi Hill. If we fall in love, we go up Chamundi Hill. If we fall out, we go on Chamundi Hill. If we have nothing to do, Chamundi Hill <laughs> It was like that. So one afternoon, between two, this is a time when I'm extremely busy building various kinds of businesses. And uh, one afternoon, suddenly between two meetings, I had a little time. So, you know, we either I have to be at some work, or naturally I will be on my motorcycle, this is my sure. life. Either I'm doing something or I'm on my motorcycle, there are no two other ways. Once again, I'm like that these days <laughs> You know, I rode all across America last yes. year <laughs> So, I got onto my motorcycle, it's like uh, the road itself takes you to Chamundi Hill. I went up Chamundi Hill without any intent, I'm saying. Right. Simply, I went up. Because I know the place so well, one of those big rocks which I like to go and sit under, it's a massive rock with a very stunted kind of uh, purple berry tree 
because it's… it's rooted in the rock, between two rocks. It's not grown as it should, it's kind of twisted itself out and a little tree but an old tree, like a dwarf tree, like a natural bonsai but much bigger than a bonsai <laughs> Yes. So I went and sat there, I've sat there many times, you know, I've been there many times. Actually, I've slept there during the nights uh, many years ago. So I simply sat there, my eyes were still open, suddenly I did not know which is me and which is not me. What was me was like all over the place, the rock that I was sitting on, the air that I breathe, just everything, like it's almost like I burst out and I was everywhere. I know it sounds nuts, I also thought so <laughs> huh. But I thought this lasted maybe uh, ten, twenty minutes or something. But when I regained my natural sense of thinking, it was about four and a half hours. For the first time in my adult life, there were tears. Me and tears were just impossible. But tears to a point, my shirt is all wet. I've always been, uh, you know, I, I said I was angry, but being happy, joyful, being that is not a problem for me because I'm young, everything is working out, uh, everybody thinks I'm super successful, everybody's clapping their hands. So I'm saying this is really nothing to bother me. So being happy has not been an issue, but this is something else. Every cell in my body is bursting out, bursting with ecstasy. Uh, it's like, it's undescribable, it's like that. So after some time, I shake my head and think, what's happening to me? The only yeah. thing my skeptical, logical mind can say is, maybe you're going off your rocker. Right. So, slowly I try to talk to some of the closest friends that I have, something is happening to me, you know, like I'm just feeling like I'm bursting all the time. Hey, come on, what did you pop? What did you drink? These are kind of questions. So what happened was, there was nobody around me who had any sense of what it is, so I didn't have a context. All I knew was, I've hit a gold mine, I don't want to lose it, that much I knew. But yes. I don't know what I've hit, I do not know what it is. I thought… when I looked at the world around me, I thought I'm the first human being on this planet to get to this place. Had you not <laughs> read about… I mean, you were so… had you not read about the Buddha? I know what you've… I've read where you've said no. you're not a study person, but had you not read about the Buddha at all or understood that this was uh, something that had been attained a few times? No, I had not. I grew up, uh, you know, like uh, you won't believe I was uh, probably more Western than the Western people at that time. Right. No, and I know you ran away from school and all that stuff, but so you, you had no, you hadn't even read Siddhartha yet. Like, you know, for no. us, we all read Siddhartha, whatever it is, so at least we get that version of the story, you know. Uh, I had read Richard Bach, that's the best right, I had that's, gotten. Right, that's funny. So, so you, you didn't have language for this experience, that, no. so you had to create it for yourself, the language. See, I think that is why, that is the reason why in many ways, uh, I'm standing out as a unique expression today because yes. I had no traditional language in my head. Amazing. So I had to figure out every little thing. So when I saw, when I observed this phenomena, like if I sit here, I think it's two minutes and seven, eight hours have gone by. I, if I sit here, I don't know whether it's day or night, it just… just goes away. I'm not unconscious, I'm fully conscious, very alert, but time just poof, like that it was gone. So, 
when I really paid attention what is happening to me, then I realized, if I can sit here without messing with my mind, I will burst into ecstasy. I realized this much. When I realized this, then I made a plan. Because I was full of plans, I was into construction right. and uh, variety of… <laughs> by then I was in about half a dozen small businesses and growing them. So, I made a plan that in two and a half years time, on that day world's population was 5.6 billion people. I made up a plan in two and a half years time, I will make everybody ecstatic because I couldn't imagine who will not want it, you know? <laughs> That's who great. will not want it? Yeah. But <laughs> Forty years, look at this. <laughs> That's so funny. And, and I mean, obviously you've helped millions and millions of people. But I, this is, I guess, the we're, we're almost out of our, our time and we didn't really get to talk about the book. I'll say I've read the book Karma and one of the great things about it is you define karma differently than the way we've uh, always heard it uh, said. Uh, and you say in the book, it's okay if you don't understand and try to memorize all this stuff. You can just read it like the eight different kinds of karmic memory. But if one has ever wondered about this book is, it's really just gave me so much to, to think about. And I'm going to read it a second time. It requires, I think, a second uh, reading actually to try to get all of it. But how often does it happen that people who have the opportunity to hear it directly from you and then learn this technology from you actually get to this place of transcendence. Meaning, I have no doubt that you really walk around in this state of bliss. But I haven't met very many people in life who are truly able to master their inner being. Viktor Frankl was probably another from all different traditions. And for me, I don't think it has anything to do with a god either. I love what you say about which, the god up above, which weighs up. Can regular people really attain this? Is it really attainable? So essentially you're calling me a freak, huh? Yes. Let me just <laughs> look at yourself. As you said, look at yourself. You have you the know, best sense I, of humor. You do have I, the best sense of humor. I land yeah. in, whenever I land in the United States, I am made to stand in that, uh, you know, uh, uh. in that line for the immigration where it says resident alien. That's funny. Yeah. So, <laughs> I stand there and I look at everybody else in the line, nobody else fits the description except me. That's funny. <laughs> but, but you too, I like, I like, like you throw jokes all the time. Wait, but the, the, the um, oh, a little code to people, if, if he says it happened, uh, that means it's a uh, joke's coming. Uh, but uh, in the books. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it's a long story that's going to get you somewhere. I particularly like the one about the cow dung. But uh, here here, but but really, is it is it, as you say, without desiring it, without going after it? I love what you say about is just it looking possible on for things. everybody? Is yes, the really, is it possible? Yes. Uh, well, I think you must visit Isha Yoga Center for that. And. They are not just here. Isha Yoga Center is not just a physical space. There are millions of people around. See, today, uh, people ask me, Sadhguru, what is the, uh, you know, what is the greatest achievement in your life? So I said, tears. I said, what, tears? I said, yes, because wherever I go, whichever part of the world yes. I go, not a single day passes for me without me witnessing tears of joy around me tears of ecstasy around me. Yes. So, I don't think there's any greater blessing than that. 
So there are millions of people like that. I can very proudly say today, there are millions of people, if they close their eyes and sit in the morning, tears of ecstasy will wash their cheeks every day, millions. So it, does it work? First of all, why would I invest my life into something that doesn't work? I can do any number of things. Of course. Why am I doing this? Because it works, all right? It is not because of anything else, simply because it works. It works for everybody. Only thing is, you must be willing to do it. Somebody else cannot do it to you. I cannot do it to you. I can offer it to you, I can guide you, I can hold your hand, but you have to do it because it can never be done to you because it's an internal process. Yes. Well, all right, you can hold my hand, I accept. And uh, I will... Uh, I can't wait. I've... as I say, um, the promise of this is exactly what everybody wants. And it's certainly... Uh, as a... you know, the few moments of my life that I've sort of had moments like this, uh, afterwards you try to hold on and of course you can't hold on. Uh, see, the moment you this. try to hold on, you go the other let way. Let me say yeah. this, uh, Brian. See, almost every human being, at some moment, they would have at least touched something close to that. Yes. Only problem is, they don't have a system and a process to stay there. It is like you are on a trampoline and you went up in the air. Fantastic. But the thing is, next moment you'll be falling down and again you may jump. But if you build a staircase, you go there and you stay there. So, what is considered as a yogic system is just this, that it is a very unromantic, unromantic process of building staircases for yourself, that if you go up, there is no coming down. It's very romantic to jump up, leap up in the sky and fall down. But you fall down, we must understand that, because there is no process to support that. So, we building a process is most important that you build a system through which you can stay. Thank you so much for this. I'm, uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm deeply grateful that I came across your work during this strange year. And it's been a, a true comfort to me in, in so many different ways. And I'm really glad that I got to have this conversation with you so people can hear the lucidity of your thoughts, the, your heart, and that they can go find your work. The new book is called Karma. It's out in a week, I think, here. Uh, I got an early copy, got to read it. Uh, death is all... I will say, uh, we wrote a line in our TV series a couple years ago where a character says, in the great expanse of time, we're already dead. And I know that's something you understand incredibly well from reading the book <laughs> Death and Our Impermanence. And Inner Engineering, too. I'd say I've read all three books and I highly recommend them to the people listening. Uh, they are, uh, whether you don't believe in the idea of gurus or yogis or spirituality, they're practical guides and worth reading for that reason. So I'm very grateful to you for this time. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And uh, being a yogi is not an idea, we are real, okay? <laughs> well, I don't know. You might just be a computer, you said. I might just be looking at a computer image. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope when you come through New York, I'll get to meet you in person. Thanks.